there needs to be mechanisms that really jazz people up about being small force landowners and excite the next generation about this idea of owning land and having it not just be um, a cash sink and, you know, sort of an albatross around their neck, but really something that they love and adore and participate in and that has value to them, whether that's through something like a a carbon program or whether that's through uh, keeping their kids really excited about natural resources or, you know, timber income, all sorts of things. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. Well, welcome everybody to the 11th episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. Uh, I am your host today, Patrick Schultz, uh, and I am joined by an illustrious guest, uh, Dr. Elaine O'Neill, who is the executive director of the Washington Farm Forestry Association. How are you doing, Elaine? I'm doing great, Patrick. Just great. It's wonderful to be invited. Do you prefer doctor or would you rather be call you Elaine? I think Elaine works just fine for our conversation. I mean, we've done a lot of stuff <laughs> together, so it's it's very, very appropriate. I always have so much respect for people that went all the way through and did their PhD that I want to make sure that I give them that that proper ado because I could never do it myself. <laughs> it's so It's just so much work. Um, and maybe that's a good place to start. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about your um, your background uh, in forestry and what your your research was on and, and where you're from and how you got interested in forestry. Give us the whole life story. Oh, wow. That's, long, <laughs> that's a long and sort of torturous route, Patrick. Well, we've got about 40 minutes. So. Okay. Yeah, it's not all about me. That's, that's the point. Um, that's right. So I started my I was very interesting how I started my forestry experience I grew up in rural Alberta in Canada and I was doing this work and I met a couple of German forestry students Hmm. so they'd taken a year off and they were out riding through the wilderness and I got tied in with them and they said you should be in forestry you would be a perfect forestry you know forestry would be perfect for you and I'd never really thought about it before then So then I was entering university that fall and I ended up switching majors. It took about a year and I did my undergraduate work actually at the University of British Columbia, Uh, graduated in in 89 and spent about a little over 12 years out there uh, doing every kind of thing you could imagine. I lived in a fairly rural area and which meant there was a lot of opportunity. I did everything. A field forester could do, I did everything. And I worked for industry, I worked for government, I worked for tribal interests, I worked for consultants. And then I got the uh, research bug 
and I came down to the University of Washington. I was interested in working with small landowners and I got tied in with something called the Rural Technology Initiative and actually did my master's work looking at the impact of the regulatory, uh, the proposed regulations on small forest landowners. And I met a bunch of small forest landowners at that time, uh, including the person that recruited me for this job here as the executive director. And then um, there were some issues that emerged out of that regulatory uh, situation. And I started doing some work looking at the impact of bark beetles it turned out impact of bark beetles and climate change, mountain pine beetles specifically. And so that led to a PhD, which you're right, it was an enormous amount of work. Um, but really, really interesting because when you start to unpack the fact that the we have been looking at climate change impacts in our forests and different parts of our forest for, in, in my history, since the mid-90s. And then you ask the question, what are you going to do about it? And that led into some additional work where I really started looking at carbon and, and carbon impacts and how forests and wood and wood products tie into that, into that piece. Uh, so I've done a lot of work in that space. Um, then I ended up running an organization that is a, a consortium of multiple universities that look at the carbon impacts of wood, the environmental performance of wood and wood products. And then I got headhunted to uh, back to love, which was small forest landowners. Um, and now I'm in this perfect place of being able to bring all of those passions together, bring the forests and the people um, and this whole issue of how do forests, how do forests, serve as part of a solution to climate change together and we're going to talk a little bit about that and what we're what we're doing at this moment but i think it'd be worthwhile maybe to start at the beginning of wffa that's enough about me let's talk, let's talk <laughs> sure about of course i do want to backtrack just a little bit because i like well i always really enjoy asking people in this industry how they got into forestry i think everybody has a unique story i love the idea that you just met two German foresters. Forestry students. <laughs> forestry students. Women yeah. forestry students. And I, I never would have thought of it. And then these two people show up on my doorstep, literally. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did some uh, horse packing into the into the wilderness. And I spent, you know, it was like, yeah, these are my kind of people. It was perfect. I love that. Yeah. I had a similar uh, sort of serendipitous. I had to take a summer class. I needed to get some sort of science credit out of the way. And I took a, a wildflower identification class that happened to be taught by a forester. And he and I just developed a relationship and talked a lot. And he convinced me to go off to forestry school. And it's just one of those things, not a lot of people know of forestry as a profession, and then you get plugged in. But what I'm really curious about too, because you said you had a natural draw towards working with small forest owners, which I also feel that way. And I'm just curious, what was behind that, do you think? I don't know. I like working with people <laughs> and I like working with forests. And it, you know, maybe one of the things when I think back of all of the other things that I've done is that 
the opportunity to do unique and novel things is more likely to occur with a small forest landowner. Yeah. Because they have more than, uh, you know, they're not totally driven by profit, although they can't ignore that. Um, that they have all of these other goals and all of these other interests. And usually what you find is that they're really lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find inside of WFFA is just a, a, a great bunch of people that are lifelong learners and they're always interested in learning this and learning the, you know, all, all, that's really the basis of the organization is uh, being a lifelong learner, being curious, wanting to solve problems and being proactive really being proactive and they see a problem out there in the forest or they they are, are doing some reading and they say i'd like to do that on my land i mean just some amazing stories out there patrick amazing yeah stories. i i concur a hundred percent and i think we're in it for the same reason because i just i absolutely love working with people that are so interested in trying new things and learning new things and then in the process they become this vast wealth of information themselves that they'll almost never own up to they never really call themselves that wealth of information but they absolutely are and that transitions very nicely to the washington farm forestry association which i know firsthand um you know going to those meetings and being around that crowd um what i always like to say is you walked in into one of these local wffa chapter meetings and there's you know probably a thousand years of tree farming experience just sitting around you waiting to be uh you know plucked and and just prodded and asked questions um you know ask them for a tree farm tour and they'll be ecstatic to give you and 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 show you around the property and they'll talk about all their mistakes quote unquote um but really those are just lessons learned and i just that's one of the things i admire so much about the wffa um, but, you know, not all of our listeners maybe are familiar with the organization as a whole. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background on what it is, how it started and that kind of thing. So Washington Farm Forestry Association, we actually have this book called Stewards of the Land. And it has this history in the front. So I went back to it to make sure I got my dates right. And it actually started earlier than I thought. I knew that it, it had been incorporated as a nonprofit in the 1950s, it turned out 1953 was the year that it was incorporated. But it actually started the whole conversation around helping small landowners do a better job of managing managing their forest. Started in 1944, hmm. and it was it was an interesting mix of industrial foresters and DNR foresters and soil conservation service. So that's the NRCS used to be the Soil Conservation Service, right. um, and private, small private landowners getting together and figuring out how to bring a new vision to their land and support them in growing trees as opposed to um, what was historically happening at that point. And I think it's really, really interesting that WFFA started essentially in the same location that tree farming started in 1941. And I would bet most listeners don't know this piece of history, so I'll just drop it on you. So June 1941, the Warehouser Company, which was then a privately held firm, not this you know enormous uh, entity that it is today, decided that they, uh, they dedicated the very first tree farm in the country 
in Montesano, which is literally 20 miles from where I am right now in Chehalis, uh, called the Clemens Tree Farm. And that began the era of instead of logging it to pay the taxes and then just abandon, or, you know, a logging it and then abandoning it land because you didn't want to pay the taxes to actually logging it and reforest or, or reforesting this whole idea of um, managing, learning how to grow and reforest and tree farm right. started here in 1941. And in 1944, so this is only three years later, folks were saying, well, you know, we've got a lot of people that own small parcels. We need to help them figure out how to do this too. So in that, that sort of intent and that mix of private landowners who may or may not have forestry background and uh, people with, you know, professional and technical expertise is pretty much represents even the mix of people we have today. Uh, a lot of people like myself, I'm a, I'm a small forest landowner, but I have this technical knowledge. Uh, but we have most of our members don't have that technical knowledge, but they have a passion for trees and they have a passion for doing the right thing. And so they're always there trying to understand and learn how to do better with what they have. I think that's a, you know, that's a hallmark of the organization is since the 50s, it's how do we provide education and information to these folks? And, you know, we've worked with WSU Extension a lot. We've worked with DNR a lot. We've worked with the other universities a lot. And every entity, you know, the NRCS and the conservation districts, they all have their core uh, elements that they can provide to landowners. But there's nothing like seeing it firsthand for yourself. And that's where our community of folks who have probably tried and failed so many times, it's just, you know, they, they'll all admit there's so many failures. Here's what I did. Here's what not to do. But if you're going to try it, at least try it this way. So maybe it won't fail quite so bad. Maybe it'll work for you, you know. Um, it's just it's just a lovely community to be involved in because they're so willing to share what they know. I, I call it neighbor helping neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. I, I It's become, whether it was the intent or, or not, um, or just a byproduct, but it's become this very organic peer-to-peer -peer learning opportunity. And I, I just, I love, um, I love that the attitude that I I encounter at a lot of those twilight tours and things um, like we mentioned already a lot of uh, landowners just pointing out all the things that they did wrong and have learned the hard way and that's I mean I just can't get over how valuable that is I don't want to undercut what we do at WSU Extension of course we're we're certainly a a, a great education and outreach mechanism but being able to hear it from someone who's done it and been doing it and is doing it um is and seeing it on the ground is really key and that's why well that's why we partner with wffa that's why wc extension and wfa is a tight partnership because we can work off of each other uh and, and benefit from that and i i'm i'm always thrilled especially now that we're i never say 
I don't like saying post-COVID because uh, that's dangerous, right? Uh, <laughs> but at least things are changing and getting better and just seeing all the Twilight Tours popping back up again. And I really encourage anyone listening to, to go look up their local chapter and uh, try to participate in one of those. I would agree. And I think if there's one thing that came out of the last two years of not seeing anybody is how much fellowship there also is. It's, it's, it's yeah. education and it's information, but it's also a community of folks who, if you're a, a small forest landowner, you love trees and you're concerned about them being healthy and all the rest of that stuff. This is your community. You know, they, they, even if they have vastly different views of what they want their forest land to look like than what you want your forest land to look like. When you get in one of these meetings, it's all about the trees. Yeah. Look at this and look at this. And, and, and there's so much excitement, you know, so that's, that's been the staple and the mainstay of WFFA for, you know, next year will be 70 years. Wow. So I think we're going to have to have a party. We should, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a big blowout. Yeah. And, but, you know, so there was all of that piece and it's, but it, and it's very much, I'm going to say organic and localized to these local chapters. We have 16 chapters. Some are more active than others. Mm -hmm. uh, some have a larger population. And I mean, if you look at Washington state, you can kind of expect that there's some parts of the state that have enormous numbers of small force landowners. Northeast Washington is one of them. Southwest Washington is another. Right. And then the other, there's other parts of Washington that have fewer number because more of the land use is, say, in public land or in large industrial or, or something other than forest. And so you have this, uh, in, in every case, you have somebody who's interested in sustaining this fellowship and this community uh, around this idea of forestry and forest land ownership. So that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool thing. Now, that's the chapter level. And I always think of Washington Farm Forestry Association as a tale of two entities, really, because here at the state level, I'm the executive director. And then I have, you know, I have some technical help, um, you know, some, somebody that manages the finances and the website and the, uh, my executive assistant who manages everything because that's what <laughs> does. And um, we have a government relations person and we have some people that are on contract to work on regulatory and policy issues. And so you see that, that this tale, this second part of WFFA is really around advocacy on behalf of small forest landowners. You know, we're a pretty small organization, but really we try to represent the needs of all small forest landowners because you'll see in the regulatory and um, legislative environment, if our voice isn't there, our needs aren't heard. And so it's critical to have that voice of uh, small forest landowners because it's a pretty small component of the society but they own, they actually own a lot of land. You know, um, a couple of years ago, probably more like four years ago now, we were successful at advocating for some funding to go to the University of Washington. So WFFA did that. We wanted uh, the University of Washington 
School of Environmental and Forest Science to update a database that back in 2004, I think we were instrumental in getting the funding to develop that database of small forest landowners to understand some metrics around how many landowners are they, where are they, how much land do they own, what are, do they have issues with regulatory, you know, sort of things around conversion, all of those kinds of issues. And it turned out to be a really fascinating report um, that's, you know, freely available on the, on the UW website that looks at this. Turns out there's 218,000 small landowners, but 77% of them own less than 20 acres. So they're not even really counting themselves as small land. So that goes down to an acre of forest, right? So this is done with the GIS system. Um, And about 5% of the small forest landowners own 50% of the land that's in small forest landowner ownership. So you, you have these few very large small forest landowners and a whole lot of very small small forest landowners. And for the most part, the people that we work with, especially in that regulatory environment, the legislative environment, is the people that own more acres, you know, lar- on that larger end, because they're more likely to have those interactions with the regulations yeah. if they're doing a harvest, for example. Uh, although I think everybody should be interested in in their private property right and in how things like growth management and and this whole conversation around carbon, et cetera, might yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and as you said, you know, giving a, a voice to small forest owners, making sure they have a seat at the table, at the policy table is just so important, even down to that one acre lot. And you're talking about 218,000 landowners, that's 218,000 sets of different management objectives and goals and histories and passions for their land and what they want to do with it. And it's so diverse and that's a difficult task that I do not envy to represent them at the policy scale. (laughs) But I I mean, it's just, uh, it's so important that it's done. Uh, And the WFFA has, I know, a long track record of all kinds of different projects, um, you know, from that landowner database to even the big leaf maple syrup stuff that's going on in the region that we might get to talk about in a future podcast but i know today we want to talk specifically about a very special project called the uh, forest carbon work group am i getting that right that the dbfa is leading up small forest landowner carbon work group ah there's some more words in there uh but so this i you gave me some information on it It sounds really fascinating because i know this is something that uh in my you know work with small forest owners everybody's asking about this because they see it on the horizon as an inevitability that the carbon that is growing on their land be valued for what it's worth uh and someday i hope it will be um and i'm i know I won't. Uh, I won't try to explain the program for you. I'll, I'll give you some space to to tell us a little bit more about what that is and what you're hoping to do with it. Okay. Well, I think I'll start with the the history of it. Uh, so WFFA, there's a another organization that we we call it our sister organization. There's quite a bit of overlap in membership, but it's not 100. 
and that's the Washington Tree Farm Program. Mm-hmm. I think at the beginning I talked about in 1941, Weyerhaeuser started the American Tree Farm System. And since that time, the American Tree Farm System has morphed into an, a, um, an organization that's really of and for small forest landowners. The, it's a certification system of and for small forest landowners. Weyerhaeuser would no longer be eligible because they're enormous, right? I think they're the sure. largest forest landowner in the, in the world, at least in the country, if not in the world. But um, the Washington Tree Farm Program is a certification body for small forest landowners. So if you see those signs about wood, water, wildlife, and rec- uh, wood, water, wildlife, and recreation, I think. Uh, on the signs in those, those are, it's a different level of certification. And so we work with them pretty closely and we had sat down, I think it was fall of 2020. And we said, you know, carbon is on the horizon. What do we want if anything shows up in the legislature? And we had talked a bit with the American force foundation, which is the overarching group that handles this American tree farm system for the uh, nationally. And they had this pilot program that was funded by one of our West coast entities like Microsoft or Amazon. I'm not, can't remember which, um, that they were pilot program to figure out a carbon program for small forest landowners. And their pilot was in Pennsylvania. Mm. And so we said, well, when's it going to come to the West? And they didn't know. But there was some really good information that we received from them, and we started poking around and what the options and alternatives were. And and we knew that we were a little bit different by virtue of the fact that, remember, we'd started in 1944 trying to get small forest landowners to think about forests as, you know, think about their land as a tree farm as opposed to a woodlot. It's a completely different mindset here. And so we had this, this conversation and nothing happened, nothing happened. And then at the end of that session, that next legislative session in 2021, there was a, uh, somebody reached out to us. Remember that we're known there in the legislature as that voice of small force landowners. And they said, Hey, if you need a, if we're going to put something in this bill around carbon and small force landowners, what would you need? And we're like, well, actually we, had this conversation six or eight months earlier. These are the kinds of things that we think we'd need to work our way through because we have this unique situation in Washington state. We also have some prior laws in Washington state that we'd have. Sure. So we said we want a work group. And um, so they, that actually got into the law. And uh, then we've been, tapped to lead that work group and that we actually just received some funding to do that. So it's going to be a really complicated process, but a really interesting one. Um, because I'm, again, I come from this background that has an understanding of the science of how all these pieces fit together, how forests and wood products and, you know, all of these other elements fit together. And the, we have prior legislation that says you've got to account for that any kind of climate bill. So I'm like, oh, how are we going to do this for small forest landowners? And so we've put together a proposal that we're in the process of filling out that 
is pulling information from small forest landowners. There's no point in developing public policy that says, here's a program for you if no one's going to participate because it doesn't meet their needs. So a core need is to understand what would you need as a small forest landowner to participate. And, you know, think about 216,000 from one acre to probably 5,000 acres. They're all going to need slightly different things. Um, but to get a group together that can work their way through that, um, bring in the science information. So we've tapped into the UW again. They, they have some really cool ideas about how to be able to quantify change on the landscape. And um, we've tapped into them. We've tapped into uh, an organization that looks at how that we'll be able to track what happens to the wood that that small forest landowners grow and what's the variability in the amount of wood that comes off of uh, small forest landowner holdings. And then we've tapped into a bunch of different, you know, we have a bunch of different ways for small forest landowners to participate. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I'm hoping small forest landowners hear this and say, hey, I want to be part of that. We're looking for a diversity. And I, I think that's really important because they, when you think about small forest landowners in this state, the first word that should come to mind is diversity. Diversity of mindset, opinion, goals, objectives, dreams, you know, how long they've owned it, all the rest of that. And so that means they're all going to need something a little bit different. And if we don't capture that diversity, either in the work group or during, a, we want to do a survey, a broad survey. We want to do some focus groups, which is a little bit more effort. And then we want to uh, reach out to people who are willing to provide information on their, uh, you know, sort of their management and in their harvest activities and yield and that kind of thing to try to build. We think we have a story around management um, and the alternatives and what the outcomes are from a carbon perspective. And we want to capture that. And then, of course, we have uh, interest in hearing what other stakeholders would view as important in these kinds of programs. So we're also reaching out to them. And it's, I mean, it's been fascinating the kinds of folks that are sort of popping out of the woodwork that are all of a sudden interested in, in coming up with novel ways of approaching this. Because the current carbon programs for large landowners will not work for small landowners. Sure. Can you speak a little about why that is? We actually did a, a podcast, a, a webcast, a webinar, online webinar education thing for um, small forest landowners back in January. We had one of our folks who has done a lot of work trying to figure out how to make this work on his place. And it's, and it's, it's mostly about transaction costs entering into the market. A lot of times it's about uh, limitations on what else you can do with your land. And there's just a whole lot of uncertainty around, is this just a Ponzi scheme? Yeah. Which, you know, that's really not fair to the people that are providing these kinds of services, but that's the kind of concern that's coming up. And so to be able to get that kind of, uh, get all as much information as we can and haggle our way through it in a work group that's built of and for smalls 
with some, you know, technical support. We're, we're very fortunate in this state to have people who are small forest landowners who are also very, very steeped in this knowledge. And they're willing to support. They're willing to do the, the work to um, work our way through this. And, and I think about it as a way to actually do the hard work of coming up with public policy proposals, because that's what we're supposed to deliver back to the legislature, some recommendations mm-hmm. to the le- legislature. Do the hard work of figuring out what it is that we need, what the pluses and minuses and the alternatives and the outcomes and the science behind it, to give a nice little package back to the policy makers for them to take, then take it through their process or not. You know, it always changes when you go through the legislature, you know, proposals rarely, uh, bills rarely end up the way that they start. Um, so it's pretty exciting. I mean, it's a, a really, really interesting opportunity to think about how do you support small landowners keeping forests as forests? How do you um, support, if you will, better forest management? And it's like, well, what does better mean? Yeah. From a carbon perspective, better means something a little bit different than if you're trying to focus on some other attribute. I'll just I'll just say that from all of my experience. That, um, but that doesn't mean that you have to forego all the other things that matter to you uh, as a forest landowner if you want to partake in carbon. Right now it does. And right now there's a lot of limitations on that. But I think that we could come up with something. I think really we could come up in, with something I'm envisioning as first in nation for how to do this, how to integrate the idea of a carbon market. So you're really paying for an ecosystem service inside of or in addition to some of the existing markets that are out there. Like, um, and I think back to some of the stuff that I was involved when way back when with the Rural Technology Initiative, we've been talking about payments for ecosystem services, whether it's clean water or wildlife habitat or now carbon, for at least 20 years. Yeah. At least 20 years. And so far, we haven't cracked any nut in that regard. Um, There's payment for timber. Um, Some people have figured out how to get payment for recreation on their properties. I I can think of a couple of examples of that. Um, But this payment for ecosystem services for the values that come along with forests, like clean water and, you know, clean air and habitat, fish and wildlife habitat and, and just beauty, just beauty in our areas. You know, those are byproducts of, people keeping their forest land forested. We haven't talked about maple sh- maple syrup, Patrick. <laughs> <Latest. know. laughs> well, I think that's a really interesting point because I mean the concept of payment for payments for ecosystem services has always fascinated me. And um, in in school and, and when I was in graduate school I, I took a class on that and it was really interesting because one of the things that the professor mentioned was that when we run the numbers on the actual value of some of these things, like clean clean water, for example, the ability of our forest land to 
you know, maintain water quality and monetizing the benefit of that to society. The number is so massive that it almost becomes theoretical. It's just hard to really think about it in practical terms. So we don't. <laughs> it's the problem. We haven't been able to. So it's just really, it's just, it's an interesting problem almost that the uh, the forests are providing such a valuable function that we just can't wrap our heads around how we can really pay these um, landowners to maintain that. And But they're doing it anyway, which is great, most of them. But they deserve to have that service valued, especially in an era of climate change, um, where people like small forest owners uh, can really pay attention to 20 acres in a way that 20 acres on Forest Service land or somewhere else just won't won't get that level of care because, you know, it's got a lot more land to deal with. So we need to be valuing uh, these ecosystem services for, for what they're worth. And I'm really excited about this group. I think, I, I hope that in listening to this, some landowners are thinking to themselves how they could participate in one of those ways. Well, I mean, if they're interested, the very first thing they could do is uh, we have a web page up and running on the Washington Farm Forestry website, wildfarmforestry.com. And so there is a link there, and then there's a the, an email address there. I have a one of my longtime uh, small forest landowners who's very, very interested in this has uh, decided to, well, I pegged him to help manage this whole process because it takes a certain amount of passion for the cause to, uh, you know, to, to put the amount of energy that it involved into this stuff. It, it just does because it's, it's kind of like the way that we think about uh, the value of forest land for providing clean water. And it's so massive, we can't even account for it. And therefore we do, when you think about society in the way that we approach problems I really, I, I remember this this paper I read years ago uh, by, I think it was Halling, C.S. Halling, if I remember. It, it talks about the fallacy of command and control in natural resource management. And that sounds like a real mouthful for most people. And, you know, they turn, they turn their ears off and their eyes are rolling back of their head. But the essence of it is that the more you push a tighter and tighter stringent uh, regulatory environment, the more likely you are to get some kind of an unintended consequence that totally derails your goal. And uh, I remember this fabulous presentation. This was quite a few years ago from one of my major professors who then went on to lead the forestry school at Yale, where he was talking about the incredible opportunity offered by having a diverse group of small forest landowners uh, scattered around communities. It was Chad Oliver actually gave a fabulous presentation talking about this and talking about the diversity of small forest landowners actually being a core part, a key part of the future in terms of uh, maintaining biodiversity in our lowland forests, because that's mostly where we're situated, more in the lowland forests. 
And because we have such diversity of goals and objectives, you're never going to see a uniformity of management. And the other thing that in his long and storied career and his observation, just like mine and yours, is everybody tries some, they keep trying stuff. They do different things. And that's where your innovation comes in. And so the innovation is really what's going to lead to, I think, long-term sustainability of these forests. And the the challenge is, is that you get an increasing regulatory environment and then your ability to actually innovate or do management or even get your kids interested in doing management and passing on the tree farm goes way down. And that's one of the things that we're seeing is that there there needs to be mechanisms that really jazz people up about being small force landowners and excite the next generation about this idea of owning land and having it not just be um, a cash sink and, you know, sort of an albatross around their neck, but really something that they love and adore and participate in and that has value to them, whether that's through something like a, a carbon program or whether that's through uh, keeping their kids really excited about natural resources or you know timber income, all sorts of things. But the most critical thing, part of that, I think, is, is keeping forest land forced. And to do that, you have to keep small forest landowners jazzed about owning forest land. That is the challenge. And I think that's a challenge for WSU Extension. It's a challenge for us. Um, and it's really, but it's also a great opportunity. Yes. There's all these people wanting to move out to the country. Mm-hmm. We're wide open. They, they can come join us. Wafarmforestry.com. <laughs> well, I could not agree more. Uh, and that was uh, very well said and so well said that I think we will call it there, uh, especially on that last call to action there, uh, wafarmforestry.com. There you can find some more inter- uh, more information about the carbon work group, ways to participate, um, which is just, it's really exciting that something like that's happening here in Washington. And I hope it will indeed be the first of the nation pioneering uh, innovation around carbon management for forest owners. Um, so thank you, Elaine. Really appreciate you joining for this podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll have you on sometime down the line to explore whatever else WFFA is doing next or talking about what they've done in the past. It's such a great organization. It would be, would be wonderful when we get all this work done to come back and say, hey, this is this was the process we went through because I think that might be as interesting as the outcome and also uh, help people understand why we get got to the outcomes that we got to. And here's the opportunity, you know, sign up or encourage your legislator to vote for it or wherever we end up <laughs> with it. Right, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening to the Forest Overstory podcast, and we will catch you next month.